0: Welcome to the Eastern Oklahoma Catholic Podcast, your source for all things Catholic in the Diocese of Tulsa and Eastern Oklahoma. Who's been Catholic the longest? Here, forty-four, 44 years. You've been a Catholic. Oh, 19, Anybody beat nineteen forty-four? You're said. What? What year? Forty-four. Okay. What? 42. We got a winner. All right. All right. All right. Who's been Catholic the shortest amount of time? She's becoming Catholic this year. That's awesome. Maybe, yeah? Four years? Okay. Anybody, anybody less than four years? Okay. So whether you've been Catholic for four years or 80-something, uh, <laughs> You've been going to mass for a long time. Um, going to mass is probably the kind of the, the main thing that, that we do as Catholics. Um, when people say, uh, oh, you're, oh, you're Catholic. Well, where, where do you go to mass? Or where, where do you go to church, right? It's the, it's the main thing that we do. Um, it's also one of the things, not necessarily that's misunderstood, but I think is sort of under understood. Um, most Catholics cannot really articulate um, what happens during the mass. So I'll give you an example, cause I don't wanna, I don't wanna, I don't, I don't really know any of you really. I know a few of these guys, um, but if you brought a friend to mass who had never been to mass, would you be able kind of piece by piece to explain to them what's happening now? And I think a lot of people would say, I think I could, like there's some readings going on. Uh, there's, there's something being, you know, read from the Bible, the priest, you know, he's up there and he does some things. And then the bread and the wine become Jesus. We could articulate that probably, but there's so much more that's happening in the mass. And so what I want to do is just kind of take the whole thing apart um, from walking through these doors or wherever you go to church to when you walk outside these doors, what is going on? What is happening? So the key thing in the mass um, is the moment when we receive Holy Communion, when the, body, when the, when the bread and the wine become uh, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. Those are these, these kind of key moments, but there's so much more around the mass. One of my favorite saints, John Vianney, St. John Vianney was a 19th century French priest. He's the patron saint of parish priests. So if you ask any priest who's your favorite saint, you're probably gonna get St. John Vianney in the top five or 10. All right, he's great. One of the things he said is that if we knew what really happened in the mass, we would die of joy. Wouldn't that be a pretty interesting way to die, right? People reading your obituary. Oh, he, oh, he died? Oh, I didn't know he died. How did he die? Joy. <laughs> he died. He died of joy. He truly understood what was going on in the mass and it killed him, right? If we truly understood what was happening in the mass, we would die of joy, so what I wanna to do tonight is just unpack that. What, 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 what is happening when we come, whether it's to Holy Rosary or a parish that you're from, or my parish in Stillwater, or St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, or the Church of the Holy Sepulcher in Jerusalem. What is happening when you go to Mass? Okay, so let's start with what you can do at home to get ready to come to Mass. Cause really, mass starts when you wake up in the morning. All right, so you come. Let's say you come to this. What time's mass here Sunday? Nine a.m. All right. So let's just say you come here for the Sunday mass at nine a.m. Uh, so you wake up at eight fifty-eight. No, you wake up. Let's say you wake up about seven, seven thirty. Okay, you wake up, and the preparation for mass has already begun. Hopefully. Um, Because coming to Mass, um, especially, I just encourage um, something uh, during the week or even that morning where you read the readings ahead of time. Because a lot of times what happens is we come to Mass and we're a bit distracted, and that's okay, it happens, life happens. You're running late, you have little kids, you're trying to get your husband out the door, uh, you're, you, you, you get a speeding ticket on your way to mass, you, you're hungry, right? There's all these things that happen when we come to mass and, and, and that, that, that distract us. And so sometimes we sit down and that first reader gets up and reads something from something and it just goes right by us, right? So one of the best things that we can do before we ever walk through the doors of the church um, is just simply to sit down for five minutes, 10 minutes and read the readings. So those are available online. Those are available. I use a little, I don't have it with me. I use a little thing, a little subscription called the Magnificat. Um, It's a monthly subscription. I think it costs me 50 bucks a year um, and it's mailed to my house. There's even uh, apps on your phone where they'll read the readings to you, right? So that just might be something you can do on your way to church. Um, if you have a five or 10 minute commute, some of you have longer than that, um, you can just listen to the readings. It's, it's gonna help you a lot, all right? The other thing that I just strongly recommend that everybody do when you come to mass, when you walk through these doors is that you have particular intentions in mind, this is usually not hard for us um, because there's a lot of stuff going on in our lives, right? You all, everyone here knows somebody who's sick, right? Everybody here knows somebody maybe who doesn't come to church and you really want them to. Um, everybody knows something that's going on in the world. There's a war going on. There's a famine going on. There's an earthquake that just happened. And so when we walk through these doors, The idea is that we're not coming to Mass just sort of as a blank slate. We're coming bringing certain things. We're bringing our intentions to place them at this altar so that when Father Leo celebrates the Mass, when he offers up the bread and wine, it's not just bread and wine that are being offered, it's us. It's our intentions, it's our needs. And it's also our prayers of gratitude. Um, one of the things I tell my people very frequently in Stillwater is when you're, when, you're, when you're learning to pray or when you sit down to pray, very often, I'm guilty of this as anybody, very often, we just immediately sort of launch in to stuff that we need. My encouragement, and I, again, this is advice for myself as well, when you sit down to pray, that your first intention or the first things you you talk to God about are the things for which you are grateful. My guess is we could all name 10 things for which we are grateful right now. Family, friends, our Catholic faith, a roof over your head, a job, a car, right? Our lives are not perfect, yours and mine, but there's a lot of things for which we are grateful. And so when you walk through these doors that you have things on your heart For which you're grateful and things that you or others need. So reading the readings ahead of time and thinking about what you are going to bring to place on this altar. But a lot of people don't do that. A lot of us just sort of walk in and we're ready to just do the same thing that we did last Sunday. Um, and so, one of the reasons I ask, you know, how long have you been Catholic—four years, or 80s plus, or something in between—is um, because we can get into routines. Now, and routines are are fine, right? I brush my teeth at the same time every day, in the morning and at night. Sometimes during the day, if I eat something weird for lunch, whatever, right? You you, you have these certain routines that we do—not a bad thing. But one of the things that can really get in, get us in trouble with our faith is when we treat the mass, uh, it's it's just the same thing every week. Well, it's not. The readings are different every week. The prayers are different every week. And then perhaps most importantly, you're different every week. You are different than you were last week. Things happened to you this week. Maybe some of those things were really good. Maybe some of those things were really difficult. You're different than you were last week. This parish is different. In the 130-year history of this parish, there has never been a Sunday, I'm making a bold thing here, there's never been a Sunday where the exact same congregation was here. Can I say that with some confidence? There's never been a Sunday when the exact same people were here. And so you're different and we're different. One of the things I love in Stillwater, it's a kind of a college town and it's a little kind of a transient place, people in and out. We have lots of events, lots of OSU sporting events. And so every single week, there are new people. Every single week. One of the things that I encourage a lot in our people is to invite people to mass. Um, And it happens. Not everybody does it. We don't do it as often as as we should. But every single week, somebody comes up to me and says, this is the first time I've ever been to mass, ever. So you're different, and we're different. And so as much as the, the, the mass is kind of similar to what it was last week, same order of things, we're different, and you're different. So before you ever walk through the doors, read the readings, and come with stuff. Come with gratitude and come with intentions. Okay, so you walk through those doors and what, what happens, right? Usually you, 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 maybe you got five minutes to spare. Maybe you get here a half hour early. Maybe you get here like as Father Leo is like walking down the aisle and you're like, yes. Right, I tell my people, you just beat the priest. You just gotta beat the priest, right? But it's helpful if you can get here earlier than that. If you get here a little bit late, okay, we're not gonna throw you out you get here right as he's coming down the aisle we're not going to throw you out um but if you can get here a little early and get yourself together uh, when i first moved to stillwater one of the traditions we had which i hate is we and i'm gonna i might get myself in trouble here but um we had people at the door passing out the, the bulletin and so what would happen is people come into church with 10 minutes before church starts and everyone's just reading the bulletin and I walked in and I was like, why is everyone reading the bulletin? Because we're handing them a bulletin as they walk in the door. Well, anyway, I was like, no, okay, no, 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 hide, hide the bulletins, hide, hide them. So we, they're kind of out there, but they're, we're not handing them out. Um, when you get to mass early, it's an opportunity to, to pray. And so come on into your seat, get yourself settled, kneel down if you're able, or just sit. Because when we come to mass, when you walk into this church, um, Jesus is here. Jesus is here. All right. So you look up here and you look up and it's covered now. This is a tradition that a lot of churches do, including my parish in Stillwater. Right? We cover the images beginning with the fifth Sunday of Lent. We cover the images. Um, not because they're not beautiful, not because they're not good. Um, as a way of kind of fasting before Easter. When you walk in here on Easter, it's gonna be like the statues are like brand new. It's gonna be great. But when you walk into a church, you're going to see uh, a light like this. It's typically red and it's a candle that's lit. What that means is that Jesus Christ is truly present in the Eucharist and he's here. Um, We have a little kid at our parish, he's in third grade and he's very smart and he's very, he he notices things. Um, One of the things he used to do when he was in like kindergarten, he would walk in uh, the church and he would look for the red light. Um, In our church, the red light's kind of hanging over the tabernacle and he would say, mom, he's here again. (laughs) Well, he's always there. But this little guy was like, I don't know, did Jesus like, sometimes he's there, sometimes he's not. But Jesus is here. So it's a good opportunity just simply to, to pray, to come with your gratitude, to come with your intentions, to leave them at the altar of the Lord. Okay, so then we're ready for mass to start. It's nine o'clock, and maybe there's like a little announcement, whatever. And everybody stands up. Every single time in the Catholic Mass, every single time you change postures, we are doing that for a very specific reason. A lot of my non-Catholic friends, when they come to Mass, they're like, you guys move around a lot, okay? And we kind of do, right? You stand up, and then you sit down, and then you stand up, and then you sit down, and then you stand up, and then you sit down, and then you stand up, then you kneel down, then you stand up, then you kneel down, and then you stand up, everybody comes forward, you go back, you kneel down, then you sit down, then you stand up, then we leave. (laughs) I get that right? I think I got it, okay? right? That's a lot in like an hour, okay? But each one of those has very particular meaning. When we stand, we're standing for a purpose. When we're sitting, we're sitting for a purpose. When we're kneeling, we're kneeling for a purpose. So we all stand, Um, and that is a couple things. Um, to, to greet the, the, the celebrant, right? So the priest is, is coming down uh, the aisle. And so we all, we all stand together. So the priest then comes up um, and he does the same thing every week, all right? So it depends on kind of how the church is configured. But usually the church, the, the, uh, the priest, and if there's maybe altar servers or a deacon, um, they will genuflect, meaning they go down on, on, their, on their right knee. Um, genuflection. Um, has, has purpose, has a reason behind it. Um, if you go back to kind of the, the early days of the church, um, when a king, when the king or the emperor would walk in, everybody would genuflect. They would go down on a knee in honor of the leader, in honor of the king, in honor of the emperor. Well, we do the same thing, but not for a human person, but for the God of all goodness, the God of all creation. So we come in and we genuflect and then typically we'll either genuflect and then bow to the altar. So then the priest comes up and the priest makes his way to the altar and then does something um, kind of interesting. Uh, when the priest and the deacon get to the altar, um, they, they bend down and they kiss the altar. They kiss the altar. Um, I have a little nephew who's now 21, but when he received his first Holy Communion, I was there. And uh, after mass, uh, he comes up to me and I thought he was gonna be like all excited about receiving communion, which he was. But he goes, uh, Uncle Brian, uh, I, have a, I have a question. And I was like, yeah, Colin, what, what do you got? He goes, um, why do you smell the altar? Why do you why do you smell it? I was like, smell when? when? oh, okay. No, no, no. You're talking about the beginning at the end of Mass. oh we kiss the altar. Oh, okay. And then he goes off. We kiss the altar as a sign of reverence, right? We kiss what we love. You don't walk up to strangers and kiss them. Very bad. Don't do that, right? You kiss your your spouse, your kids. Your aunt and uncle, maybe a, maybe a good friend. You know, you kiss them on the cheek, kiss them on the lips if you're, if you're in love, right? We kiss what we love. So we go up to the altar and as a sign of reverence, because the altar represents Christ. Christ in our midst. The table of the meal that is the Eucharist and also the table of the sacrifice. That what happens in the mass um, is the, the crucifixion the passion, the suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus is made present to us again. So there's one sacrifice, Jesus on the cross. That sacrifice is presented to us again and still on the altar. So the altar is not just some table, it's a very serious piece of furniture. Um, in fact, when, it, when an altar is dedicated, Um, typically the bishop comes and and covers it with sacred chrism. The same chrism that was used on you on the day of your baptism and on the day of your confirmation. We take that chrism, this beautiful smelling oil, and we rub it all over the altar, right? To bless it, to make it holy. Just like we did for you at your baptism and at your confirmation. So the altar is a big deal. Okay, so then we haven't even said anything yet. Maybe we sang a song. Um, But then the first words out of the mouth of the priest are in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit. Those are critical words that when we pray as Catholics, we pray not certainly not in our own name, but in the name of the Trinity, in the name of God who is father and son and Holy spirit. When you were baptized You were baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Every time you receive a blessing from a priest or a deacon, every time we pray, we pray in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So Mass is the same way. All right, then there's a little greeting. The priest has some options. Um, There's this wonderful book, which you guys have seen, but you probably have not explored. And that's okay. This is called the Roman Missal. This is what the priests and the deacons use when we celebrate mass. Um, We don't have to make it up. The church gives this to us. Um, In fact, we're not allowed to make it up. We're not allowed to change things, right? The Roman Missal tells us what to do and what to say. And so in here, there's a couple different greetings that the priest can offer. Usually what you hear is the Lord be with you. And then the people say back, what do you say? And with your spirit. Now that messed us up because that changed, right? We had a translation change back in, I think, 2010, 2011, something like that. Um, But the people respond, and with your spirit. All right. Then right at the beginning of mass, it's a kind of a stark beginning, um, it's, it's, it's a little bit, I had a friend one time who had never, had never been to mass. And he was like, the, be- the beginning of your, of your service thing, he called it our service thing, um, of your service thing, it's kind of a bummer. Like right, right out of the gate, you guys like talk about sin. Like, why can't you talk about like something, you know, kind of happier? Now I get what he's saying, but it, he's, he's right. Right out of the gate, the first thing the priest says, he says, brothers and sisters, let us acknowledge our sins and so prepare ourselves to celebrate the sacred mysteries. So right out of the gate, we are asking God for forgiveness of our sins. It's an acknowledgement before God and before each other that we are weak, that we are sinners in need of a savior. And so then there's a little bit of, usually a little bit of time to actually think about our sins. Um, So that sometimes people are like kind of looking around or they're like, okay, what are we doing now? You should be thinking about your sins. The priest says, let us acknowledge our sins and so prepare ourselves to celebrate the sacred mysteries that we want to be sin free before we come up and receive Holy Communion. And then there's some different options, but usually we then pray together, this kind of longer prayer that's called the confitier. I confess to almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters. So we're acknowledging not only to God, but to that person sitting next to you, who might, you might be related to, or you might be a total stranger, but you're, we're acknowledging to them that you are a sinner. So we say, I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I, you're speaking in the first person, that I have greatly sinned in my thoughts, in my words, in what I have done, and in what I have failed to do. Sins of commission, things that I actively chose, and sins of omission things that I should have done that I didn't, okay? I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned. This is a good example when we go to confession. Uh, When you go to confession, confess your own sins. Um, What happens many times is people come in and they're like, oh, I have this sister and she's this and my husband does this and my kids are this or my mom is... And I, sometimes I'll, I'll kind of stop people and say, okay, wh- okay uh, what, what, like, what about you? What about you? Oh, me? Oh, right, you're there to confess your own sins. So we're speaking in the first person. I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have greatly sinned in my thoughts and in my words and what I have done and what I have failed to do. And then we do something kind of interesting. We like pound on our chest. Through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. Um, It's kind of an interesting thing. Now, some people kind of, and there's not, there's, you know, I don't know what you do if you just kind of, right? But there's, we got, I got some people in my parish who are like, oh, oh," like they're having a heart attack or something like, okay, you can settle down. You know, you don't have to beat yourself to death, right? It's just an acknowledgement, kind of a physical acknowledgement that I've sinned. And it is interesting what we do is we strike, our, our, like our breast, we strike our, our heart through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. And then we invoke the saints. And so I ask Blessed Mary, ever virgin, let me get this right, and all the angels and saints, and you, my brothers and sisters, to pray for me to the Lord our God, the Confidier. And then the priest gives kind of an absolution. Um, At the beginning of mass, if you acknowledge your sins and you ask for forgiveness, your venial sins are forgiven, not your mortal sins. The ordinary way for mortal sins to be forgiven is in that confessional. But your venial sins can be forgiven if you are truly sorry. So then the priest says, uh, may almighty God have mercy on us, forgive us our sins, And bring us to everlasting life. Everybody says, amen. And then we do the Kyrie, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. Then, depending on the time of year, um, during the season of Lent, we don't do it. During Advent, we don't do it. But all the other times of year, we then sing or we say the Gloria. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to people of goodwill. The Gloria um, is a beautiful prayer and it comes from the first chapter of the gospel of Luke. Um, One of the things that people will oftentimes say, and maybe you've heard this. I certainly have. People say that Catholicism don't buy it. Catholicism is not biblical. Hogwash. Okay. Not only did we write the Bible and put the Bible together, But if you look at the prayers that we say, if you walk through the mass, the the scriptures, the Bible is all over it. From praying in the name of the Trinity, you know, when Jesus, Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus at the end of his life, at the end of, after the resurrection, he says to the apostles, go and baptize all nations in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, right? That's how we begin the mass. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The Gloria is scriptural. It's the gospel of Luke. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to people of goodwill. We praise you. We bless you. We adore you. It's this wonderful hymn of praise to Almighty God. During Advent and Lent, we, we kind of fast from it. So that when Easter rolls around and we get to say the Gloria again, uh, it's kind of new again. The same, same reason that we that we cover up uh, a lot of the the statues. Um, It's an opportunity to kind of fast from that hymn, and then it comes back with a bang in in Easter. All right, so we say the Gloria, and then there's there's an opening prayer. We're just now getting to the opening prayer, isn't it? It's amazing how much there is in the Mass. So then the priest says, let us pray. And then typically a little server, or a deacon, or somebody comes over, And they have this book open and they open it in front of the priest and the priest says whatever prayer is there. It's different each week. Um, Listen to it. Pray with it. Um, The prayers that the church offers are uh, incredible. Incredible. Um, Each week you could spend a minute or two, five, ten, twenty with just the opening prayer, which is called, officially is not called the opening prayer. It's called the Collect spelled collect. So what happens is the priest standing at his chair or at the altar and he prays the collect. What he's doing is literally kind of collecting all of the prayers that you have brought and offering them to God. Every time you hear the priest pray, um, he is praying as, as we the priest represents and, 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 and takes all of our prayers and offers them to God on our behalf. Okay, so listen, listen for that next time. When the priest says, he's going to say, we, us. Um, I don't know if you'll ever hear the priest pray out loud, I. I, I don't think that you will. It's we and us, the priest I, I like to think of it this way. A kid, one of the teenagers, at, I used to be at Bishop Kelly High School in Tulsa, one of the kids, um, he said, it's like, it's like the priest has like a like a mirror. And like all of our prayers are like laser beams. This is how our kids think. I don't know. All of our prayers are like laser beams, and the and the and the priest has this mirror, but it's like tilted kind of up. And so then our prayers are like the laser beams, and they go, two but it's kind of helpful, right? Your prayers going to the priest and then up to God, the collect. All right, and then we sit down. So we've been standing that whole time. It's really not that long. And then we sit down. And now when people say the mass is not biblical, come on. A big chunk of the mass is literally somebody standing up and reading the scriptures to us. And so, at a Sunday Mass, you're going to hear four readings. You're going to hear four readings. Typically, one from the Old Testament. Then you're going to hear a psalm, one of the 150 psalms from the Old Testament. Then you're going to hear a second reading, typically comes from one of St. Paul's letters. Right? So, you're going to hear those three. Old Testament, psalm from the Old Testament, and then a New Testament reading from one of St. Paul's letters. Okay, first reading, Psalm, second reading. Then we stand up again. And we stand for a very particular reason because the fourth reading is different from the other readings. Because the fourth reading comes from one of the Gospels. It comes from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Today's Gospel came from John chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus. Last week's gospel, John chapter nine, I think, the man born blind. The week before, John four, I think, the Samaritan woman at the well. Now these last three, they've been kind of long, haven't they? Your legs get a little tiny. Like, is this over yet? Are we still, are we, am I supposed to still be standing? Yeah, the gospels were a little bit longer during, during the season of Lent. The gospel is proclaimed. Um, one of the cool things, and you'll see this at a lot of different churches, um, and Father Leo said, you guys do this here at Holy Rosary. Um, typically, the gospel is proclaimed actually from a different book. So many churches will have, and, and as Holy Rosary does, um, a specific book called the Book of the Gospels. So the Sunday readings will come from one book. And the gospel comes from another book. It's just another way to show people that this reading is different from those. We could say it's better. It's all the word of God. But when we read from the gospels, we read from the life of Jesus. When we read from the gospels, we read from the life of Jesus. Now, one little cool thing that I think a lot of people, lifelong Catholics never notice. Um, At my church in Stillwater, we have a couple deacons And one of the things is is, is in in the opening procession, we walk in with the book of the Gospels. So the deacon walks in with this big book and then he goes up to the altar and he places it on the altar. And then when it's time to read from that book, he goes up to the altar, he picks it up and he walks over to the ambo with the book of the Gospels. And then he proclaims, the gospel to the people. So what's interesting though, and what a lot of people don't notice is that we bring the book in, but we don't bring the book out. It's because deacons are lazy. No. (laughs) We bring the book in Then the gospel is proclaimed. And so the gospel actually does go out. Not in the book, but in you. No pressure. The gospel is brought in, proclaimed, and then you, each one of you who hears the gospel, takes the gospel out into the world it comes in and it goes out in in the book out in you lifelong catholics have you ever heard that before maybe sort of kind of it's one of those things a lot of people have 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 never have never heard that it's beautiful it's beautiful okay so the gospel is then proclaimed and then we sit down um one thing you might uh, depends on it depends on the church but when the gospel is proclaimed um What we want to do is is not, I would say this, not sit down so quickly. Because one of the things that the priest does, or the deacon who's proclaiming the gospel, after he proclaims the gospel, he bends down and he kisses the gospel. And then sometimes it's placed in a different, sometimes it's placed underneath, or sometimes it's given kind of a place. But wait just a couple seconds before you sit down. Let the priest... Kiss the book and put the book away and then be seated. I think a lot of us are, we're we're kind of anxious to sit down. We've been standing for a while, um, or we've just kind of been taught that. But wait just a minute and allow the the priest or the deacon to to reverence the book, to kiss it, and then to put it where it goes and then sit down. Try that next Sunday. We'll see. Anyway, okay. So the gospel is then proclaimed. And then we have the homily. Now, the homily can go in any number of ways. Especially those of you who've been Catholic for a while, you have heard really good homilies. You've heard, and then you've heard like, what was that? That was a train wreck of a homily, okay? Um, Many, many people judge their Sunday mass going experience based on the homily. Uh, I, I don't want us to do that. Um, we come to mass. Um, there, there, ha- there should be a homily on a Sunday, um, but the homily is, is not the centerpiece. So for many of, especially for our, a lot of our Protestant brothers and sisters, the preacher preaching is it. It is, it is the high point. And for many of you go to, you go to a lot of Protestant churches, um, their, their sermon, we call it a homily, their sermon will be 30, 45, 60, minutes, right? It's the high P it's, it's it. They sing some songs and then the preacher preaches for us. The homily is just one part of the mass. So we want good preaching. You should expect good preaching. Um, But it's not the be all end all of the Sunday mass going experience. All right. I just say that kind of uh, on behalf of all priests and deacons uh, who, who preach um I love to preach. It's fun. Um, I look forward to it um it's It's something that that I like to do. I was a high school teacher for a while. I like public speaking. A lot of priests and deacons don't. they have other gifts now don't let them off the hook right they, they Our preaching should be good but but it's not what we need to judge you know how, how was mass? Oh the homily uh, uh you know. Oh, it was so boring or it was, right? That's not how we ought to judge uh, the Sunday mass going experience. Okay, so what is the point of the homily? The homily is meant to break open the word, to take what we heard in the first reading, in the Psalm, in the second reading, in the gospel and, and break those open. That's the goal. Okay, so the homily ends. The priest typically goes back to his chair and then we all stand up again. So notice when we're standing, typically we're either proclaiming something, like the Gloria, like the Creed, or and when we're sitting, we're we're typically listening to something. All right, so the postures matter. So then we pray together uh, the creed. Now, what's really great about the creed, I don't know if you've ever studied Uh, what we call the Nicene Creed. That's what we say every Sunday. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. There is so much in that creed. Um, One of the things that happens, if you've ever uh, read or looked through um, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the Catechism is split up into four parts. The first part of the Catechism breaks down the creed line by line. So when we say the creed every Sunday, my guess is there's probably a line in there that you don't really understand fully that maybe has always bothered you or like, what do we mean? I believe in the resurrection of the dead or resurrection of the body. What is that? The catechism is your friend. The catechism can, can help you. Um, it goes piece by piece, line by line through the creed. So check that out. I'll also offer a wonderful resource, which is happening right now. Um, if you're a podcast listener, if you don't know what that is, you can see me after I'll hook you up. Um, there's a wonderful podcast that's happening right now. There's a priest up in Minnesota, Father Mike Schmidt, and he's, it's called Catechism in a Year. And for 365 days, he is walking us through the catechism. Today is day 82 or something. Um, it's awesome. It's really good. I listen to it every morning. I'm a priest. I do this for a living. I'm supposed to like memorize this. Not really. Um, I've learned a ton. I've learned a ton from Father Mike Schmidt. It's awesome. That's a great thing. So we stand up and we profess the creed. Um, The creed is ultimately what we believe. It's the basic kind of unit of, of who we are. And so we stand up and we proudly profess the creed. Um, If it's something that's not very familiar to you, I would encourage you to maybe have a book where you can read along with it. Um, That can help you kind of better understand the creed. So, so, so beautiful. One of my seminary professors, um, he used to tell us um, whenever we would be talking about the creed, um, he had this line where he would say, gentlemen, there's blood on that creed. People died for you to be able to stand up and profess that creed that all those lines of the things that we believe every single one of them has been battled out in the life of the church and so never take it for granted there's blood on that creed right so we proudly profess our faith following the creed uh we have what we call the prayers of the faithful uh or the or the um uh there's another word for it i'll think of it in a minute. The intercessions, yes, wonderful. Um, these are just opportunities for us collectively to bring our prayers to God. Um, and so you're not gonna hear a lot of specifics. Um, you're not gonna necessarily hear a lot of names. We always, at my parish, we announce the names of people who have died um, just over the last week, okay? Sometimes there's no names, sometimes there's two or three. Um, it's an opportunity for us collectively to, to pray, to lift up our prayers. That's an opportunity right there Whatever you walked in the doors with, your prayers of gratitude and the things that are going on in your life, that's your opportunity right there to bring those to the Lord. Okay? Then we all sit back down again. And then we do the all-important collection. This is really why we're here. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, But the collection is actually, it's a part of the Mass. It's a part of the mass and, and I would see it not as a, oh man, oh, there they come again with those baskets, right? I would see this, the collection as an opportunity to contribute to the good and the life of, of the parish. Um, so some people give electronically, some people bring just kind of cash out of their pockets, some people have envelopes, some people, whatever you do is great and awesome, right? But it's an opportunity um, in, in kind of a stewardship way of life. We give of our time, we give of our talent and we give of our treasure, right? So it's just one of the ways in which we contribute to the life of the church. So the collection happens, right? And then typically kind of the, the collection gets brought up or it goes somewhere um, and then it gets counted later and then it goes to the bank and the lights get to stay on and you can have air conditioning in the summer and Father Leo uh, can have food. Okay, the collection happens and then something really amazing the gifts get brought up bread and wine um this is not insignificant when the bread and wine get brought up uh i want you to see yourself your prayers also being brought up because what happens is they get brought up and they get brought to the altar so not just bread and wine but You, your prayers, your family being brought up here to the altar. And then what happens is the priest takes the bread and he offers it to God. He says these words, blessed are you, Lord. He's talking to God on your behalf. Blessed are you, Lord, God of all creation. For through your goodness got to have my book in front of me. <laughs> I'm getting old. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation. For through your goodness we have this bread to offer, which Earth has given and human hands have made. It will become for us the bread of life. And then the people say, "Blessed be God forever." I don't know if any of you are farmers. God bless you. It's awesome, right? That's a, that's a, it's not meant to be a total shout out to farmers, right? But it's a beautiful acknowledgement. W- where does bread come from? Well, the store, of course. Well, how does it get to the store? Farmers and truckers and everybody who, who, who makes it in, in, by, the, by the work of their hands. The work of their hands is brought to the altar and offered to God. And then the same thing with the wine, Blessed are you, Lord, God of all creation, for through your goodness, we we have received this wine we offer you, fruit of the vine and work of human hands. It will become our spiritual drink. Blessed be God forever. So not only is bread and wine being offered, but you, your family, your life, your gifts, your joys, your sorrows, all of that being offered to God. All right, then the priest washes his hands. Um, this is more symbolic. Um, I typically wash my hands sort of with soap and water before mass, just uh, cause I've been shaking hands and kissing babies and blessing people. And uh, and so the priest washes his hands at more, more out of symbolism where this actually came from um, is, and this still happens in some countries. When the offertory happens, when the bread and wine gets brought up, not just bread and wine gets brought up. So we have a number of parishioners who are from Nigeria. Um, and one of the things they do in Nigeria is everybody brings like stuff for the priest. Eggs, bread, goats, chickens, right? In the, they just bring it up. They just walk. And they hand, they hand the priest a goat. And the priest, I don't know what he does. Takes. I've never seen it in, in real life. I don't know if he takes it and hands it off and the goat goes out the back door. I don't know. Um, but then, now your hands Your hands are dirty. You've touched goats and chickens and, and, and eggs. So the priest washes his hands. But when he washes his hands, there's a prayer that goes with it. Um, asking for forgiveness of his sins. Lord, wash me, wash me of my iniquities and cleanse me of my sin. All right, then the priest invites the people to stand. Pray, brothers and sisters. This is key, key, key. The priest says, and this is a line that sometimes we we miss because we're kind of standing at the same time. The priest says, pray, brothers and sisters, that my sacrifice and yours. Pray, brothers and sisters, that my sacrifice And yours may be acceptable to God the Almighty Father. So the implication is that, yes, the priest is offering the sacrifice on behalf of the people, but the implication is that you have also brought something to be offered. Pray, brothers and sisters, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the Almighty Father. And then the people say, may the Lord accept the sacrifice at your hands for the praise and glory of his name, for our good and the good of all his holy church. Pretty great, pretty great stuff. Okay, then the priest launches into the prayer over the offerings, which changes from week to week. Then the priest goes into the preface. He says, the Lord be with you, lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord, our God. That can change each week, right? This beautiful prayer called the the preface. Um, Those are all in the Roman Missal. You can actually find them online. They're really beautiful opportunities. kind of things to to pray with um, if you're looking for uh, just good scripture or good good prayers to, to, to pray with. So the preface happens. And then we move into a very critical part. Um, and it's called the Eucharistic Prayer. And there's different options in the Roman Missal. And there's generally three that you're gonna hear: Eucharistic Prayer One, Eucharistic Prayer Two, and Eucharistic Prayer Three. All right, they should have like fancier names, but Eucharistic Prayer One is the longest. Um, it has a lot of the names in it, the names of all the saints. Um, if you've heard it, we honor Linus, Cletus, Clement, Sixtus, Cornelius, Cyprian, Lawrence, Chrysogonus, John and Paul, Cosmas and Damian, and all the saints. Have you heard this one? Okay, that's the Eucharistic prayer one. It's called the Roman Canon. It's the oldest one. Um, before the Second Vatican Council, it was the only one. So, if you were a mass goer, kind of pre 1965, 66, um, that's the only one you heard, and you heard it in Latin. Okay. Eucharistic prayer two is the shortest. Euchar- Eucharistic prayer three is probably the one that that priests use the most, I would say. But in there is all kinds of beautiful stuff, um, beautiful prayers, <clears throat> offering to God um, the gifts of bread and wine. So then we come to, I think, the critical part of the mass, not the homily, not the music, but the point at which The bread and the wine become the flesh and the blood of Jesus. We call it transubstantiation. The priest calls down the Holy Spirit upon the bread and the wine. He then takes the bread and he says these words Take this, all of you, and eat of it. This is my body which will be given up for you. And then the priest holds up the host for all to see. And usually some bells are rung. That depends on the the parish. Um, That's a beautiful moment. In that moment, the bread and the wine that got brought up this aisle and taken up and offered up to God, that bread and wine ceases to be bread and wine. It becomes the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus and it happens right in front of you. I have a good friend in Tulsa, and he, he's the only person I've ever known who, who says this. He refers to the mass as the miracle. So when we were together at the high school and I would celebrate mass, he would say, after mass, he would say, Father, thanks for the miracle. Or he would say, what time's, what time's the miracle today? He means what time is mass? He calls it the miracle. I love it. I love it. I don't know why that hasn't caught on. But it's a miracle. Every single time you walk through these doors and go to Mass, a miracle is happening right in front of you. Because what we believe is that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that the bread and the wine become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. Every single time. Guys, that's a message. If, we, if that message could get out and if people really believed it, um, this place would be jammed. All of heart sore. What county are we in? What's it called? Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh County. All of Pittsburgh County would be beating down the doors if they really believed that Jesus Christ was present at every Mass. So that's something, first and foremost, we need to believe and take into our hearts and then to share that with others. So the bread is offered up. The wine is offered up. It is transformed. It's transubstantiated. The substance of it changes. It still looks like bread and tastes like bread and looks like wine and tastes like wine, but it is not bread or wine. It's the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. Wow. Amazing, amazing, right? That's something to dive deeper on. If that's something you're kind of just hearing or, or it's just now sinking in, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that um, tomorrow night. Okay, so finally, we come to the end of the Eucharistic prayer. Um, we, we pray together. Uh, we have the, the sign of peace, right? Where we turn to others around us and offer uh, some peace. We pray together the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer. Um, And then there's a moment where uh, we're invited to then come forward and to receive what has just been offered up on the altar. Um, This is a moment that I think far too many Catholics take for granted. Um, that I think I would just simply say that we, I think we treat kind of too casually because we did it last week and the week before and every Sunday of our life. And so we come forward to receive Holy communion. And what happens when you do that, right? You, you walk up here and father Leo standing here and he has the, the called the ciborium kind of the bowl. He holds up the sacred host And he says to you, he shows it to you, and he says to you, the body of Christ. Now, in response to that, we just have a one-word response, and the word is amen. What amen means is I believe. The body of Christ, amen. Um, That moment right there, And then when you take the the Holy Communion in in your hand, um, St. Cyril of Jerusalem in the fourth century, he said, if you receive in your hand, he said, make a throne for your king. I love that image. Make a throne for your king. So sometimes people are kind of like, eh, eh, eh. Okay, don't, don't do that, right? Right? Make a throne for your king. Or... Come forward and open your mouth and stick your tongue out a little bit. And the sacred host will be placed on your tongue. Um, That moment right there ought to be the high point of your week. Now, maybe you love your job and you love your wife and you love being retired or whatever. You have other good things happening in your life. But for that brief moment you are receiving into your body, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. Um, I say this to our kids all the time, but I think it's relevant for adults as well. This This is a tabernacle. Inside this tabernacle, we reserve the Eucharist. Whatever is left over from the Mass, we reserve it there both so people can come and pray and then that we can also take Holy Communion to the sick and to the dying. When you receive Holy Communion, you become a living, breathing, walking tabernacle. Little old you. What was the first thing we did at Mass? We talked about that, that we're sinners. Brothers and sisters, let us acknowledge our sins and so prepare ourselves to celebrate the sacred mysteries. A lot of things have happened since that moment. We've acknowledged our sinfulness. We've asked for forgiveness. We've given God praise and the Gloria. We've listened to the word of God proclaimed to us and broken open in the readings and the homily. We've watched the miracle happen right in front of us. And then unworthy as much as we are, and we are, God invites us to come forward and to receive him. Guys, what an unbelievable privilege. One that we ought not take for granted. Um, I have a good friend who's a Jesuit priest. Um, and he, uh, he has, ready for this? He has 70 parishes He's one priest. He has a truck. And he has 70 parishes in El Salvador. So he goes around to each parish. He goes to one each week, sometimes two each week. So the people in his 70 parishes, they go to Mass once a year. And on that weekend when he comes... They do all the baptisms, all the weddings, all the confirmations, and everybody gets to receive Holy Communion. We get to do it like every day if we want, certainly every Sunday. It's an incredible privilege. So it's one that I hope we don't take for granted. Okay, finally, I'll say this. After we receive Holy Communion, we go back to our seat. Um, Use that time to pray. It's a beautiful time of prayer. Jesus is living in you. You are a living, breathing, walking tabernacle. Uh, The person next to you has Jesus in them. It's beautiful. Afterwards, the priest kind of cleans up at the altar. Um, Everything is kind of put away. And then we come to the very end. And the very end is, is very important. Um, so I would just encourage you. I don't, I don't know kind of the culture of this parish or, or the parishes where you're from. Um, don't leave early. Don't leave early. Sometimes there's, there's kind of a culture in the, in the parish. Uh, I've heard a story of a priest in Spain who installed a lock on the door. And he had a button on his chair. And he wouldn't, until the final blessing, then he would push the button and the doors would open and people could, people could leave. I think it's like against the fire code. Um, but anyway, don't leave early, don't leave early. Um, because the ending of mass is, is, is important. The ending of mass is part of mass. If you say, I went to mass, but I left early, you didn't really go to the whole mass. All right, so anyway, long story short, don't leave early. Okay, so we come to the end, there's a prayer, we call it the prayer after communion, usually very short offering up our prayers once again to Almighty God. Uh, and then there's some announcements. Typically, if you, then, they don't have to be announcements. Announcements shouldn't be that long, but that's a good way because everyone's there to kind of get the, get the word out about what's going on. And then the priest says, the Lord be with you. Again, we've heard that several times. Um, and then he gives a blessing. The priest says, may Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. How did we start? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. How did we end? May Almighty God bless you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And then, the final words of the Mass. Don't miss them. If there's a deacon there, the deacon says it. If there's no deacon, the priest says it. And there's some options. Typically, what you're going to hear is something like, go and announce the gospel of the Lord. Or go in peace. Or go in peace, glorifying the Lord by your life. Or go in the peace of Christ. What do all of those have in common? Go. We're not being rude, but we're also not asking. It's a command. The deacon or the priest is telling you what to do, which is get out. Now, that doesn't mean you can't stay around after and pray. Thank God for the gift of the miracle of the Eucharist. Doesn't mean you can't go have coffee and donuts. But it's a command. It's actually where the word mass comes from. When we say, oh, we're going to mass, right? That comes from the, in, when, when mass is celebrated in Latin. The final words are, Ite missa est. The mass is ended. The word mass The root of it is from the word mission. So you and I are then sent out. Go in peace, glorifying the Lord by your life. Go and announce the gospel of the Lord. But all the words are the same go. Take what has happened here and take that out into the world. That's the Mass there's a lot more to it. There's a lot of in-depth stuff. You can study all those Eucharistic prayers, all those prefaces, all the, the different uh, aspects of the mass. I just want to offer a couple uh, resources and I'll leave these up here. If you want to come look at them, this is a wonderful little book just simply called the mass explained. And it kind of does a little bit. What I just did walks you through each part of the mass. I'm um, a wonderful little book, easily uh, readable. Um, I also offer uh, this wonderful book called The Seven Secrets of the Eucharist. Uh, is a wonderful little book, again, pretty simple, nothing nothing crazy, uh, by a guy named Vinnie Flynn. Um, and it just walks you through more in depth on uh, the Eucharist. Um, I wanna close tonight, and then we have dinner in the parish hall. Mm-hmm. And I encourage everyone to come back tomorrow night. Um, this is a book called 40 Reasons I Am a Catholic. Also not very big. Um, there's 40 chapters in this little book. Each chapter is about a page. Um, it's by a guy named Peter Kreeft, who's a philosophy professor at my alma mater, Boston College. Um, he's a wonderful, wonderful writer and just kind of makes things very clear. Um, so in this, he, he lists out the 40 reasons that he's a Catholic. Reason number three, I want to read this to you. He says, I am a Catholic because Jesus is really, truly Personally, literally present in every consecrated host in the world. Here's, I'm going to read the whole chapter to you. You ready? You're going to be like, I didn't know where we we're going to get read to. Here's what he says. Jesus is available to me in his body and in his soul, in every mass, in my body and in my soul, and I need him there is a little red light burning perpetually in the sanctuary of every Catholic church in the world, except for good Friday until the Easter vigil between the time Jesus died on the cross and the time he rose from the dead on Easter morning. That light, that light means that Jesus is really there fully alive, fully present that there is a consecrated host in the tabernacle It is like the light that the father of the prodigal son probably kept burning in the front window of his home every single night while his beloved son was gone. So that when his son came back, he could see that light and know that that was still his home and that he was welcome back and that his father was waiting for him. I am God's prodigal son, and I need to come home. And home is wherever Jesus is, and he is there. That is why I have to go there, because I need to fall at his feet in repentance and adoration and joy. Do you doubt that he is there? If so, I have an experiment for you to do, not just think about doing. This applies to you whether you are a non-Catholic, or a Catholic who doubts the real presence. Just go into a Catholic church sometime when nobody else is around to see you and kneel in the front pew or at the communion rail and pray with all honesty. God, is that you? Are you really there? If not, please don't let me believe that lie. Don't let me be a Catholic because I want to know and live the truth, whatever it is. And if you are there, please draw me there. Send your Holy Spirit to inspire me to believe so that I can be where you are. Make me a Catholic for the very same reason because I want to know and live the truth wherever it is. It's parallel to the prayer of the skeptical agnostic. God, I honestly don't know whether you exist, but I want to know and live the truth. So if you do exist, please convince me that you do, your time and in your way. Only three things could possibly be reasons for not praying either one of those prayers. One of them is absolute certainty that the religious idea is false and that those billions of saints, sages, mystics, and ordinary people like you were all really, really stupid for believing it. That's arrogance. The second reason is not caring whether the tremendous life-changing claim is true. That's indifference, not giving a darn about truth. The third reason is the fear that it is true. And that's one step from conversion. Pretty great. Let's pray in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit. Amen. Lord, our God, we thank you for the gift of our faith, the gift of the Eucharist, the gift of the mass be with us tonight. We thank you for bringing us here. We thank you for the gift of these parishes that are represented here. Thank you for the priests that bring the Eucharist to us. Be with us throughout this night. Keep us safe and strengthen us in our faith until you call us here to meet again. And we ask this all through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.